The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. There were more disclosures today about the gifts Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has received from wealthy businessmen. John Yang has the details. Um, today, ProPublica provided the fullest account yet of the gifts Justice Thomas has gotten from wealthy and well-connected people. And there are far more than previously known. Brent Murphy is one of the ProPublica reporters who unearthed these details. And Joel Anderson is host of Slate's Slow Burn podcast, whose current season is Becoming Justice Thomas. Brent, I want to start with you. Who are these, uh, these uh, benefactors, the, these new benefactors that you uncovered, and what sorts of things did they give him? So these are three new titans of industry. There's Tony Novelli, who's an oil baron from St. Louis, David Sokol, uh, the former heir apparent of Berkshire Hathaway, and Wayne Heisinga, who is the uh, the man behind Blockbuster, AutoNation, and Waste Management. Uh, for about three decades, as you said, uh, they have given him a sort of a laundry list of vacations. We have found uh, in our reporting, there's at least 38 destination vacations in there. Uh, something to the order of two dozen or so private jet flights, handful more of helicopter rides, uh, uh, tickets to sporting events in the skybox, uh, resort stays, uh, standing invitation to an exclusive golf club. Uh, and that's just sort of what we know at this point. <clears throat> did he report any of this? He did not. And, and that's what the ethics experts told us is the big concern here, because he was bound, as, as all justices are, to disclose most gifts. And these, the ones we've reported on, many of the ones we've reported on, would not be falling into the personal hospitality exemption that um, some of your viewers may have heard about before. Uh, things like private plane rides, yacht cruises, expensive sports tickets, uh, that's not personal personal hospitality, according to the folks we talked to. Uh, there is so much focus right now on the justices' uh, activities outside of the court uh, court building. Um, earlier this year, there were questions raised about Justice Sonia Sotomayor apparently prodding schools and libraries where she spoke to buy her book. Um, how does what Justice Thomas did compare with his colleagues? So we've been actively pursuing all the credible leads and tips on all the justices. We continue to report on all of them. So far, what we know right now is that Justice Thomas is an extreme outlier. Uh, we brought the reporting to former federal judges, including those who sat on the Judicial Committee that reviews disclosures. And Jeremy Fogel told us that he has never seen anything like this before. He's thought it was unprecedented for both the volume and the frequency of the largesse. Um, these are not one-off vacations. This is consistent, steady stream of luxury vacations that Justice Thomas has received. And the other justices who you may have heard about, um, like uh, uh, Justice Breyer, Justice Ginsburg, accepting 
vacations from benefactors, uh, we know about those because they disclosed them. And that's the important distinction is that they were on their disclosures. We're going to continue to look at all the justices for the same type of evidence. But right now, Justice Thomas is the extreme outlier. Joel, you've done a deep dive into Justice Thomas's life and, and his, uh, his personality. Uh, how do these lavish trips compare with the image that he tries to project in his, in, in, in his speeches and interviews? Well, yeah, for a man who understandably prides himself on his bootstraps origin story, it's not surprising that he elides the truth about these wealthy white Republican benefactors and what they've been doing for him for the last 30 years or so. Um, when he first became a national name uh, when during his uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearing in 1991, his aides and the people that supported him tried to promote the pinpoint myth, which is his impoverished background growing up on the coast of Georgia, just outside of Savannah. Um, and that's part of the truth, but that's not all of it. Um, he actually grew up fairly middle class and went to private school throughout. Um, that's not something that is is well known uh, nationally, is that story. So it's always the sort of thing that he's not really, he wants people to believe that he is, quote, regular stock. That's something that you will hear him say a lot. But it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. As you say, he likes to talk about his up from the bootstraps uh, of, of life. Uh, but, he, he, you know, in the affirmative action case earlier, uh, he said that he thinks affirmative action uh, actually hurts minorities. How does that fit in with what you just talked about? Well, I mean, in some ways it makes sense. I think that Justice Thomas understandably is very proud of how far he's come, right, that he had to work very hard to become the second black justice in the history of the Supreme Court. But that's not all of the story. Um, you know, the first person that hired him out of, uh, out of college was an heir to the Purina fortune, uh, Missouri Attorney General John Danforth, who later became senator, when he applied to Yale Law School in 1971 and was admitted. That was the first year they had an explicit, explicit racial quota system. When he got to Holy Cross, that was the first year that they had ever recruited a substantial number of black students. And he's instead said, this, was, this maligned me, this ruined my uh, reputation among people that would have hired me and thought would have thought that I was capable. And so he's always sort of sort of had to deal with that, that contradiction in a way. This is a man who once wanted to be a priest. He went to seminary. Uh, he says in speeches he never wanted to be a federal judge. What he wanted was to be rich. Uh, you talked to a lot of people in his life. What, what motivates him? What drives him? Well, there's a lot of things. That's a really complicated and it's a really smart question. One, he was raised by uh, his grandfather who grew up in Jim Crow, Georgia, um, really pushed him to excel in spite of his circumstances. That's one piece of it. Another is that he is really never recovered from what he went through in the 1991 uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearing. That that has sort of unle unleashed a lot of anger that he's never really gotten over. And if you read his autobiography, you'll be sort of surprised at the amount of anger that is in those pages. And also, he's always wanted to get paid. Like he talked about it, he worked at Monsanto in the 70s. Um, that was a big thing. A friend that once visited him around that time noticed that he had taken down an old Malcolm X poster in his house and put up a picture of a Rolls Royce. Um, so this is a guy who is motivated by money. And also, I should note, um, when he worked, when he started working in the Reagan administration, he wrote a memorandum for the uh, for uh, Missouri Senator Danforth. It said, we have power. Now what? So he's motivated by money and power as well as all those other things. Joel Anderson of Slate's podcast, Slow Burn. Brett Murphy from ProPublica. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Our pleasure.